Our prayer is indeed, Father, that we would see your kingdom today. Open our eyes that we may marvel afresh at it. And where we are weary, compromised, exhausted in this life, encourage our hearts and raise our minds to glory today. We pray that we would live wholeheartedly for the Lord Jesus and rejoice afresh in his rule and grace. And we ask it for his namesake. Amen. George Bernard Shaw once said this, heaven as conceivably conceived is a place so inane, so dull, so useless, so miserable that nobody has ever ventured to describe a whole day in heaven, though plenty of people have described a day at the seaside. I think he speaks for many when he says that. Most people don't think of heaven as being a very exciting place to be. It sounds really boring. No offense to the harpists or anything, but we envisage an eternal harp service on the clouds, disembodied, floating around in night dresses, smiling at one another with nothing particularly exciting to do, but just to sing eternal hymns of praise to God. And probably the reason why our Christian lives are so difficult and painful is we don't really have a clear vision of what it is we're heading for. If only we could see what lies ahead and understand the full glory of that, it would make the struggling and the suffering we're going through worth it. But how do you picture heaven? What is it that lies ahead of us at the end of the age when Jesus returns or when we die and meet God face to face. This morning as we conclude our songs for the summer, we are in a group of three psalms which function as a set, which provide a jigsaw for us, or if you like, a, a PowerPoint picture. And the picture is breathtaking as we see something of the full glory of heaven. And if you're a Christian believer, this is your future. Psalm 132, 133, 134 are part of a group of songs called the Songs of Ascent. We've seen literally songs for the upward journey, a hymn book for the Jews as they traveled on pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the three great Old Testament feasts. And finally, in Psalm 134, we're home forever with God in the house of the Lord a glimpse into your heavenly future if you're a Christian believer. It's as if we're with a travel agent then this morning, looking at the travel brochure, as we look at the pictures online of what lies ahead in that destination, the turquoise waters, the white sun-kissed beaches, the beautiful palm trees, the amazing food, the lush greenery, the blue skies. Three powerful pictures of the ends for a believer this morning who's flagging, discouraged, and perhaps on the verge of throwing in the towel altogether. Three pictures of the gospel. And in each of these three Psalms, we see a different angle, a different aspect of heaven. And we're going to leave with our hearts racing as we say to ourselves, yes. I can't wait to be with Jesus there. 
Here's the first one, Psalm 132, a place of eternal security. And if you look at Psalm 132, it's very clear that it's all about David and God's great promise to him. Have a look at verse 1, remember David's. Verse 2, how David swore. Verse 10, for the sake of your servant David. Verse 11, the Lord swore to David. Verse 17, a horn for David. It's all about David. He's on center stage. Because he's no ordinary believer, but rather God's great anointed king. So this psalm is really a running commentary on the promise God made to David about the kingdom and the royal line, a promise made in 2 Samuel 7, one of the most important Bible passages of the Old Testament. It's one that deserves neon lights around it. We need to meditate on it often. And if we were in 2 Samuel 7, 2 Samuel 7, we'd see it was a text of two halves. In the first part of 2 Samuel 7, David makes a promise to God. David promises on oath that he will find a place for the Lord and build a house for God's, a temple in which God would symbolically dwell with his people in Jerusalem. And we can almost imagine something of the discussions going on in Jerusalem. We can imagine something of the discussions going on. God has dwelt with us in a tent, basically in a trailer. And now that we are in the lands, actually what we need for God is a tangible place for his presence, a symbol that God is amongst us in the capital city of Jerusalem. So before we emigrated, um, I took one of the children down to Windsor, to Legoland, and as we were traveling past Legoland, I pointed out, that's Windsor Castle. And I explained that you can always tell whether Her Majesty the Queen is in residence, because the royal standard flies over the castle. And there was great excitement in the car as we discovered the royal standard was flying over the castle, and so Her Majesty the Queen was in residence. That's where she lives. About uh, a month or two ago, we were driving past DC, and I had the similar conversation. This is DC, and we could just about see the Capitol building and just about see the White House. And I explained that the White House is probably the most important building in the world. It houses the President of the United States of America. He dwells in the White House in Washington, DC. That is not a state, but a district, and all the rest of it, but he rules not only over this country, by the way, but over the whole of the world. That was the picture for David, a palace, a house for God, the Lord, at the center of his people in the city of Jerusalem. And the building project got underway as the Ark of the Covenants was brought back in 2 Samuel 6 with 30,000 men who brought it triumphantly into the city as now God would dwell with his people forever in Jerusalem. So David was building a house for God. But actually, he was getting ahead of himself. As he sits down with the design and the royal architect and the structural engineer and the estates manager, Nathan the prophet intervenes with the word of the Lord. No, David. It's not that you're going to build a house 
for God's. Rather, God is going to build a house for you. And if you go to 2 Samuel 7, there's a play on the word house. There's double entendre. And we still use it like that today. So a house can be a literal physical building or a house can be a dynasty. The house of Windsor or the house of Saud. As David sets up to build a house for God, actually the Lord swore to David an oath that out of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I will teach them, your sons will sit on your throne. What God is promising is amazing, that God will build a dynasty for David, a royal family line, and that out of the line of David's will one day come an anointed king who will rule over the kingdom forever and establish an eternal place of safety and protection. And back in our text, Psalm 132, we discover what this king will do and what his reign will be like. Have a look at verse 17a. He will be a horn, and in verse 17b, a lamp. The horn is the picture of strength, and vigor and majesty. When you see the bull with the horns running towards you, my advice is to get out of the way quickly. The same with a rhinoceros. The horn is the symbol of strength. This king will be a potentate of might. Verse 17b, a lamp. The picture is of continuation. He will never be snuffed out or extinguished. His light, the lamp, will shine forever. Here is a king of eternal might and never-ending power. And isn't that what you ache for? I want a king who will keep me safe. I want a rule of security. And I want to live in a home and a place where I can be safe and sound forever because this is a dangerous world. We are frightened about the global pandemic or of invasion from a hostile power, China or Russia. We fear terrorism. Did you see what happened to Salman Rushdie over in New York just the other day? We fear for our financial security, for the future of our country and for our children's future and dread to think of what their children's children will face. We're frightened about rising gas prices and power outages and redundancy and in Europe droughts. And we ache for a place to call home, a safe place where we can live happily ever after. Not just in a fairy tale, but in a real place of security under a king of eternal strength and never ending continuity. And so the question in the Bible is where is this king? Is it David's? Well, head to Lancaster and Sight and Sound, and we've been there and watched the musical and see the play, and it's not David, is it, because of the adultery and the murder and the cover-up and the collapse of his kingdom. It's not David's. So is it Solomon? Well, he starts, well, but no, it's not Solomon because his heart departs from the Lord as the kingdom shatters in division 
as they are deported as refugees and prisoners of war. And so the search continues and continues for this king from the line of David. And who will it be? And when will he arrive as they search and as we wait until eventually a prophet called Zechariah hears news of a pregnancy and as he turns to the pregnant woman bearing a child in the line of David and as the spirit of the Lord descends on him and as he announces the true identity of this yet unborn fetus in Luke 1:67, he declares this filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesying he says blessed Be the Lord God of Israel because he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophet from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us as he remembers his holy covenants. It's seismic. Zechariah is saying this is that. This baby is that king that was promised. 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 132. And as you follow Jesus, it's a positive match. Because wherever he goes, he defeats the enemy and brings salvation and security, calming the storm on the seas of chaos reversing death, casting out Satan at a word, and then defeating sin itself as he bursts out of the tomb. And in the Gospels, what you're watching is the beginning, the new beginning of the new hope, a snapshot of this great world where there will be no sin or sea or sickness, or suffering, or Satan. A victory secured in that one mighty, eternal act at Calvary. As bearing in himself as the perfect king, he takes our sin, guilt and shame, as he, as he faces hell for us, defeating Satan, sin and death, bursting out of the tomb, the resurrection, his victory, parades. The thing is, all political leaders will fail us. In fact, all leadership ends in failure. It was true of President Trump and President Obama. It will be true of President Biden. It is true of Prime Minister Boris Johnson. They start so well with the manifesto and the hope but then they run out of steam or run out of ideas or lose their grip or become a caretaker administration or a zombie government or they end in scandal or division or sickness or assassination or death. Shakespeare sums it up so well in his play Henry V. In the midst of all of the plots and threats, he writes this ominous line, uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. Crown-bearing kingship, crown-bearing kingship is so impossibly difficult. And so the question for us all is, might this king, the Lord Jesus Christ, one day drop the ball or lose his crown in a coup or in compromise or scandal? Have a look at verse 18. 
On him, his crown will shine. Literally in the Hebrew, on him, his crown will blossom. The shine will never wear off his rule. His honeymoon will never come to an end. There will be no scandal. There will never be headlines in the Wall Street Journal. No dirts raked up from his past. There will never be boredom in heaven under his rule. No loss of power. No lame duck messiahship. The shine will never come off his rule. In the words of Handel's Messiah, he will reign forever and ever. Because the constitutional requirements of the law of God, verse 12, is that this king should keep my covenants and my testimonies And because of the doctrine of the impeccability of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is not only perfect, but incapable of sin. And so he can perfectly represent us to the Father and the Father to us. And as he dies at Calvary, he can bear our sin and give us by imputation his perfection that we might be united with him and benefit from the blessing of his eternal perfection and rule which is why in verse 1, the psalmist is praying for the king. In the words of the national anthem, God save our gracious king. Long may he reign over us. And at the resurrection and in the ascension, Jesus does. So what's his rule going to be like? What's it going to feel like in heaven to be under the rule of this perfect king forever? Have a look at verse 15 and verse 18. Verse 15 There will be internal prosperity, abundant provision, verse 15, even for the poor, every socialist's dream, a strong GDP, everybody provided for a happy people, the opposite of the famine in the Sudan or the gas shortages and the droughts in Europe or of the hyperinflation of Venezuela. Internal prosperity, verse 15, and then verse 18, external security. His enemies, I will clothe with shame. In Deuteronomy 28, God warned that if the people went away from him, all sorts of catastrophes would fall. They would be invaded by their enemies and defeated, and there would be internal famine. Flip it around then, so what's the mark of blessing? But security from our enemies and an internal prosperity that never ends. Verse 15, no more shortages. Verse 18, no more enemies. Isn't this what we long for? No more enemies and no more shortages. An abundant life of safety and blessing forever. And it's ours because of this King, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Psalm 132 functions as the main portraits of heaven. But in Psalm 133 and Psalm 134, we have two extra mini portraits that describe what the kingdom will be like. I suppose we're in an art gallery in New York, and there's a big oil on canvas, Psalm 132. And then there are two other mini-portraits by the same painter that just flesh out the glory of the end for us. So if the main portrait 
is a kingdom of eternal security. Let's move to our next little picture on the wall, Psalm 133, and heaven, a place of unbroken fellowship. Of course, the city of Philadelphia was, as we all know, founded in 1682 by the Quaker William Penn. And Philadelphia, because it was to be the city of brotherly love, the Greek word Philadelphia. And you'll know that the architecture of the city was designed so that it would be unified as a single entity. But I was talking to somebody this week on staff, and he said, I dread to go into Philadelphia. It's not safe to take my grandchildren there. I wouldn't go without a gun. I won't tell you which member of staff that was. <laughs> Verse 1, here is real Philadelphia. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Now, verse 1 would be a great motto for our congregational meeting that we're about to have. But actually, in the first instance, this is not a verse for the local church. It's actually a verse for the nation of Israel. Because God had promised Abraham in Genesis 12 a great nation vastly populated, more than the sand on the seashore. But in the story of Israel, what had happened to the nation was that they were not united as a family, but had fractured apart in the exile as the north split off from the southern kingdom of Judah. This great united kingdom had been fractured and divided through sin and exile, weakened and downtrodden and humiliated, invaded, splintered and lost. In the Old Testament, the main picture of judgment is scattering, and the main picture of salvation is unity and gathering. So the promise here is that this nation under judgment that is scattered will now be reunited as a new, restored, regathered, reunified nation. It is Genesis 12, all over again, the dynasty, the family, the nation back, a great nation, united under great blessing. And in verses 2 to 3, the psalmist gives us two amazing snapshots of how beautiful and miraculous this unity is. What's it like? Well, like the precious oil on the heads, running down the beard of Aaron, running down the collar of his robes. It's an echo of Exodus 30 and of the sacred anointing of the priest. The oil comes down onto the head and then it drips down into the beard of the priest before dripping down onto his robes. And you would have smelt it like the most incredible aftershave. The second picture is really borrowed not from the temple but the travel agent. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls onto the mountain of Zion. The snow-capped mountaintop of Mount Hermon, just like the Swiss Alps, is a stunning scene. But it's the polar opposite of Mount Zion, which is hot, dry, and arid. So picture the moisture of Mount Hermon somehow 
coming down onto dry and arid Mount Zion. It's geographically impossible and geologically impossible, but this is the picture of a blessing coming down from heaven onto the people of God on earth. And the point is, this is miraculous. Only God can do this. The unity of the people of God is only possible from heaven. The United Nations can't produce this in New York. They can't even get a motion through the Security Council against Russia, let alone produce what it says on the tin, a United Nations. They can't do it. And actually, we visited the UN some years ago, and it was depressing to see this utopian ideal, because it is a utopian ideal of, we will end all wars, the League of Nations after the First World War, and then the United Nations after the Second World War, but there have been something like 320 wars since the Second World War. They can't do it. It's a utopian, progressive stupidity. But God can do it, and he has done it in the saving death and triumphant resurrection of his son. So here we all are with all sorts of different backgrounds, perspectives, and agendas, but we are united to Christ as a corporate people with a single agendum, which is the glory of God and the advancement of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we come to Jesus, all of my agendas all of my interests are laid aside as together in a partnership we now say, we surrender our own interests and our own agendas and our own preferences for the greater glory of God in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in every church I've ever led, I've always reminded people of that uh, before a congregational meeting. The gospel is what matters, not my interests, but the glory of God's. This is a miraculous unity, and it comes down from heaven, and we see it at the end. Because as the apostle John looks, he sees, he sees people from every tribe and multitude, and nation and tongue, yet they're singing one single song in unison. Praise to the Lamb who was slain. As the nations are united through the promise to Abraham, through the saving death of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's heaven like? It is a place of eternal security. Second, it's going to be a place of unbroken fellowship. And if you think about it, most of the pain in your life comes from broken relationships, doesn't it? In this place, because we are in perfect relationship with God, and the Lord Jesus Christ vertically, we'll be in perfect relationship with one another, eternally, horizontally. I can't wait. But there's one last picture, and one final snapshot, Psalm 134, the final song of ascents. Because it's going to be a place, a place of Christ-centered life, Psalm 134. Behold, bless the Lord's, all servants of the Lord's, who serve by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the sanctuary and bless the Lord, 
May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. The picture is of a place of never-ending, continual focus on Christ and praise to him forever. But if we're honest, this jars because it's not what life is like now. In the very first song of a sense that you can read later, Psalm 120, we're living in Meshech and Kedar amongst the ungodly, and it's a place of war and lies. And so the movement of the songs of ascent is that we've moved from that place of lies and war to a place of beauty and praise. This is the miracle of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In just three verses in Psalm 134, God is mentioned six times. Can you see that? The Lord's, the Lord's, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord who made heaven and earth. And I want you to imagine your week like that from tomorrow. You get into your car at six o'clock and you drive to the factory or to work and actually on the radio, there's a woman giving her testimony on public radio and it goes something like this. Well, you know, I was living a life of excess and immorality and I left my husband and then I, I turned to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I heard about his death on the cross and I was broken by his grace and mercy and I surrendered my life to him and I found his mercy and beauty and I've been living ever since in praise and marvel at his love and the immensity of the privilege of being a slave of righteousness under the rule of Jesus and the authority of his word as you drive to work. And then you arrive at the office I don't know, it's a corporate office, Merck or or somewhere like that, and uh, there's 300 employees in your area, and the manager calls you all together, and then the meeting at 7 o'clock goes something like this. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to another week here at Merck. And our aim this week is to honor and glorify our Lord Jesus Christ. I want the team managers to keep an eye on what's going on with the medical pharmaceutical development over there. I want to make sure that we are glorifying God in what we do with honesty and truth. And don't forget, we have a daily prayer meeting at lunchtime. And then at the end of work, five o'clock, there's a Bible study. I do expect everybody to be there, please, for Jesus' sake. And then you get in your car and you drive off after the Bible study and there's a presidential address from the Oval Office as President Joe Biden says this as you drive home. We need, as a nation, to glorify God in all that we do. In the words of Psalm 134, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord here in the United States of America. I remind you that we are one nation under God, indivisible, that we are a people who will speak the word of God into every law and every legislative address. We will serve him and glorify him and love him with all our resources and all of our lives. And on the world stage, as the president of this nation, I will ensure that the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is heard globally for the sake of his glory and name. It's impossible to imagine it, isn't it? Isn't it?
But that's the end. That's the end. A new world full of people who love Christ and who are loved by him. No more cold shoulders, no more laws banning Christians from being Christians, no more persecution in Nigeria or Iran, no more attacks on a Salman Rushdie. The final chapter, the conclusion of the ascents, is we bless the Lord as he blesses us. And this is what every single human heart aches for. Even the existentialist, depressing atheist Jean-Paul Sartre said this, that God doesn't exist, I don't doubt, but that my whole being cries out for God, I cannot deny. It is Augustine, O God, you create us for yourself and our whole being is restless until it finds its rest in you. It is the Westminster Confession that the chief end of man is to know God and to enjoy him forever. Heaven, it's not going to be boring. Some years ago, Sarah and I were in New York and uh, we were there for three or four days and we went past restaurants at three o'clock in the morning. They were full of people eating pizza. It was extraordinary. We thought London was a busy city. I used to live there. But, but New York is just off the planet. The city that never sleeps. Restaurants crammed with people enjoying fellowship at three, four, five o'clock in the morning. And that's the picture here. Heaven will not be boring. I can guarantee that. A busy bustling, energetic, active, thrilling, exhilarating, physical place of physical perfection and beauty and order, a place of eternal security, a place of perfect unbroken fellowship, and a place of never-ending Jesus-centered beauty and praise, because Jesus has won the victory, and therefore the Apostle Paul can say, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables us to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies, that we will be like his glorious body. You know what it's like on a long journey with kids in the back? The question, are we there yet? And that should be the Christian's question. So what do you do to try and keep the kids happy in the back of the car? You put on some songs. Are we there yet? No, it's still a journey of pain and suffering and hardship, isn't it? Yet, what should we do as we keep moving forwards? Put on the song. What's the song? It is the gospel. Because the key to this life is good eschatology. And if you don't know what eschatology is, it's not the end of the world, only it is. The eschatology that we need is the end. Keep your eyes fixed on glory. KPO. Keep pressing on, no matter how hard it is. These three pictures, a place of eternal security, unbroken fellowship, 
and never-ending praise. It's yours through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the victory of our Lord Jesus, who died for our sins at Calvary and rose from the dead. Our prayer, Father, is that our vision might be him, that he might be the Lord's of our hearts. Help us to serve him and to focus our lives on him, the King of heaven, who has won our victory. And as we await the day of heaven's bright sun, we give you praise and glory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.